Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Create Your Life series, where we help you maximize your potential and results in the area of personal development, entrepreneurship, and travel. And I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. Create your life. Create ta propre vie. Create your life. Create your life. Create your life. You better create your life. <laughs> create your life. Create la vie. Create your life. Create your life. Beautiful people, what's going on? This is the Create Your Life series, and this is Sunday. Happy to be here with you. Uh, man, It's it's been a great week, and uh, actually, we lost a Titan this week, and so right now, I would really like to take a moment of silence for us losing the world's greatest, uh, Mr. Muhammad Ali. Thank you all. And, you know, as a tribute to Muhammad Ali, I mean, this guy is influence not only me but the world I actually have a couple of quotes here by him that I really 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 love and one of those quotes is is he who is not courageous enough to take risks will accomplish nothing in life and I feel like that speaks directly to our create your life series uh model and our title slogan our mission you know is to take to take action in life and then I also think that one of the other ones is, is that, you know, he said, I am the greatest. And I said that even before I knew I was. And that to me is huge because you have to have that confidence in yourself. And uh, actually, our guest just slid me a quote. And she said her favorite Muhammad Ali quote is, he who is not courageous enough to take risks will accomplish nothing in life. And actually, that's the same one that I just said. So it seems like uh, not only do we have last names in common, but we also have that same uh, enthusiasm about Muhammad Ali. And so with that being said, I want to introduce you all to our guest today, none other than, and she's very humble and she's going to be upset with me for saying this, but we actually have a living legend in the studio today in Miss Marie Dutton Brown. Miss Brown, please say hello to the Create Your Life Series family. Hello, Create Your Life Series family. I'm so happy to be here today with Kevin Brown. <laughs> yeah, again, we share that last name. So, you know, that's one of the beauties of our relationship. But I think um, the other thing about Miss Brown that you may or may not know is that Miss Brown is, uh, she's actually one of the first African-American editors and literary agents in the book publishing industry with a career of almost 50 years. That's a lot of time in the game, Ms. Brown. I have to ask you, how does one sustain or have a career such as yours? Can you give us like a couple tips? 50 years, that's, that's amazing. Well, basically, it's all about work and it's all about passion, to be passionate about the work that you do really can sustain you over time. I mean, not expecting from the beginning that it would be 50 years from my very first day in publishing that I would still 
be here to talk about how much I still love the work and how passionate I am about it. Wow. Talking about loving the work and being passionate about it. That being said, I have to ask, over these these 50 years, who are some of the authors that you've had the opportunity to, to work with and influence? Well, as an editor, I've worked with several authors, um, beginning with Verda Mae Smart Grosvenor. Her book, Vibration Cooking, was the very first book that I edited, and that was quite a while ago. Um, that was in the late 60s, 70s. I also worked with um, Mary Helen Washington, uh, who was the incredible editor of two wonderful anthologies of black women writers. Um, she was the editor of more than two, but the two that I worked with her on were Black Eyed Susans and Midnight Birds. Also, the phenomenal, iconic photographer, Chester Higgins Jr. We worked on several books together at Doubleday and Company. And the literary critic um, and scholar, Addison Gale Jr., um, there have been so many others, and I'm sure that I've left a number of people out of that particular list. As an agent, I've worked with um, and continue to work with Faith Ringel, um, who actually is a graduate of City College and who has just completed um, or has just had published her, I think, 20th book, um, her, and it's a children's book. We Came to America, which is a very timely book for young readers um, dealing with immigration. Um, I also continue to work with Herb Boyd and have um, represented him with numerous publications. Donald Bogle, the black film historian, um, and forthcoming, we have books from Valerie Graves, who's you know, phenomenal memoir on um, her life as an advertising executive. Um, I've worked with Patrick Henry Bass, who, of course, is well known as the books editor and special projects editor at Essence Magazine. And speaking of es Essence, um, I have worked with Susan Taylor and represented each of her phenomenal inspirational volumes. Wow. 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 Uh that's that's quite the list, Miss Brown. That being said, with Faith Ringel, you know, who's had a a great impact on on our culture uh, overall. Did, were you you got her started, right? Are you around? Well, I didn't get her started. Faith got herself. Yeah, Faith started. got herself started. <laughs> but I happened to represent her first children's book, um, and actually, she was um, discovered by. Um, a children's book editor, Andrea Cascardi, who was then at Crown Books at Random House. And um, she had seen Faith's um, Tar Beach quilt, um, and she thought that it would be an excellent children's book. And she contacted Faith. Faith contacted me. And um, the rest is history. Tar Beach is now celebrating its 25th year in print. Wow. 
Wow. So it's like legends with legends. You know, you guys are doing amazing work. So that being said, how do you figure out who it is that you want to work with or what projects that you want to uh, work on? Because I know there you get a slew of mail probably and phone calls and inquiries and all of this stuff. So how do you distinguish? Well, there are various ways. I mean, I think that it's instinctive. I think that it's a matter of personal taste, books, and subjects that I feel um, passionate about, Um, books that I feel that I can help the author develop into a work that a publisher would acquire that would then reach its intended audience. So it's um, basically, you know, the author and the author's work that makes the difference in the books that I choose to represent. Um, Not all of these are published um, because I'm not the last word as an agent um, on whether or not a book is published. Um, It has to go through the acquisitions process at the publishing house, and that can be long and arduous and not always um, successful. Ms. Brown, being that you have such uh, knowledge and and depth of it in in this uh, in this area, can you run through the acquisitions process really quickly? Just give us like a snapshot of what that looks like. Okay, um, maybe well, in like five five to ten steps or okay. something like that. Um, first, the author contacts me, um, and more likely than not, they will inquire as to what is necessary in order to um, submit to an agent, and we. We ask for, in terms of a nonfiction book, we want to see um, a proposal and a strong query letter that um, presents the synopsis of the work. With fiction, I prefer to see the entire manuscript, but occasionally I will ask for a synopsis and a few sample chapters to see whether or not um, the writer has um, the skill to complete a novel. Um, If we decide to take it on, what we do is to query our contacts in the business, um, asking them if they would be interested in this particular project based on, you know, what we submit to them, which would be similar to what the author has submitted to us. If the answer is yes, then we submit it to the um, editors and various publishing houses, and then we wait. It's a waiting game. It's a long process. Occasionally, books are acquired immediately. That's the exception rather than the rule. Um, If the book is acquired, then we will wait for the contract. And um, after that, it's, you know, a matter of the editorial process taking place between the author and the editor, and then ultimately the book will be published probably in a year to two years. It just depends on the work that needs to be done um, between acquisitions and publication. Wow. Thank you for breaking that down, Ms. Brown. I feel like those out there who don't know 
that much about the the process, then you definitely just gave them a snapshot into it, uh, what it takes in order to uh, get your book published if you wanted to go um, with the a big publishing house or through an agent. Now, now today, I, I see that a lot of uh, what, you, what can be done is you can self-publish. When I, I remember back at, at some time having this, uh, conversations with you, a time back, there were, self-publishing wasn't um, a big thing. But now it's kind of like a, a go-to. So what do you suggest if someone was looking to either self-publish or perhaps go through an agent like yourself to be published by a big house? Well, um, technology has certainly made um, self-publishing an option. Hmm. Um, and a lot of people have taken advantage of that. Unfortunately, they have taken advantage of it and published their books without having done the research on what is involved in book publishing. It's not just having a book between covers printed and available for purchase, but you really have to know the industry. You have to know who your audience is. So, and this is true whether or not you're self-published or you're published by a trade publisher, small or large. The author really has to assume the responsibility for marketing and promoting their books. So I think that, you know, aside from the fact that the author, when self-publishing, really must take the time and the initiative to um, publish the best possible work. This means going through the process as if they were being published by a trade publisher, which would mean... um, of course, writing the best possible work, then having it copy edited, then having it proofread and copy edited, um, and making sure that the facts are accurate or that the writing is as good as it possibly can be. And then then the real job begins, and that is the marketing and promotion, because it's all well and good to have a book, but if you don't have any readers, well, you might as well not have a book. <laughs> <laughs> I get you. You know, it's the funny thing. You know, that can be a long process. Have, being an author now, and actually you helped me in my uh, process, and you know, it's something that, that I thought was funny that you said. You said that people, they'll send you a letter inquiring on what the process is in order to um, be picked up by you. Whereas a lot of those small things can actually be found online or some of these processes can be found online as well as outlines and things like that. And I remember coming to you and having done all of this research and you said, you know what, even still, you know a couple of things, but you don't know what you need to know. And I recall you telling me, hey, you need to go and read book publishing for dummies and you need to read some articles and really understand this business as a whole. And that. That goes to what you said earlier in when you first started. You said you love the work and that you get up and do it, you know, continuously. And I've actually, I've got a few, I have a few uh, quotes here of people about you. You know, here's a quote right here where it says, Brown rises at 5 a.m., rarely gets to work after 7 a.m. and frequently works on weekends. Is that, is that still true? That's absolutely still true. And I think that that is, you know, um, a result of the passion. I mean, one does not work that way if you're not in love with the work that you're doing. And, I mean, there's always more information to gain. But book publishing and reading manuscripts is, an, you know, is a real task. It is not something that you just plug in and you can listen to it for three minutes and then you know 
if there's a talent there or not. You really have to put in the time. You really have to be in love with the process. And um, it's a time-consuming profession. Uh, it takes hours and hours and days to read pages and pages of manuscripts that can range anywhere from, you know, a children's book of 40 manuscript pages or 10 to a full-length um, novel, which could be anywhere from 300 to 600 pages. Wow. Ms. Brown, you're, you're 75 years old. I'm, I'm looking at you right now. You don't look 75 years old. And, you know, you, you're full of life. You were texting me earlier. You know, you, you've got Facebook. I mean, you're, you're all over the place. When we have conversations, you're talking about uh, pop culture, things like that. How does one stay so youthful and up at 5 a.m. really on a day-to-day basis, seven days a week, and you're doing your work passionately? I personally don't know. I haven't seen a lot of people at your age still do that. I hate to be redundant. <laughs> but, you know, it has a lot to do with a commitment to the work and um, an obligation to those people who I work with. And it also is a matter of responsibility. I mean, I think that what I do is a responsibility. There are so few African-Americans in the publishing industry, and I can't afford to drop the ball. I just really can't. Wow. Um, so at this particular stage in my life, um, thank you for reminding me how old I am. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, 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 don't, I don't apologize. <laughs> but at the same time, um, I don't think about it. I really don't think about being any number. I mean, every now and then, I'm reminded, um, and I feel it, but at the same time, I mean, that has nothing to do with uh, the commitment that I have. There are many elders out here who are as committed as I am to their mission, and um, I don't want to begin calling names because I will forget some people, but at the same time, you know, we came up through an era, the civil rights era, where I feel that there were many of us who took on this responsibility and took it on really seriously. Um, We participated in the movement. We observed all types of sacrifices by people who went through a lot more than I did and um, who, you know, fought for rights to vote and to work in the industries, to integrate the industries in the schools where, you know, we are now having these opportunities. So I just feel that I'm obligated to do this out of a sense of commitment which comes naturally and easily. It's not something that somebody's, you know, forcing me to do. Mm. And so you talk about this obligation and, and you talk about people who come before you. I have to ask, who are some of your heroes or some of the people that have inspired you? Well, there are so many. They come into my vision daily, you know, um, but it just depends on who I'm thinking about and what I'm going through. I mean, it could be, you know, 
um, a writer such as Sonia Sanchez or James Baldwin, um, or it can be an iconic historic figure such as Harriet Tubman or a freedom fighter such as Nelson Mandela and um, Fannie Lou Hamer or Randall Robinson or an entertainer as Stevie Wonder or Michelle Obama who has really demonstrated to all of us how to handle a very challenging situation with grace. Mm. So I'm I'm nosy. So I want to know, like, what about Harriet Tubman or what about some of these people? You know, like we know that they're great people, but I'm wondering, like, what are they specifically to you? What is it about them that makes you say, you know what, I, get, I have to get up every single morning and do the work? Well, you mentioned Harriet Tubman and um, when I was in, I think, junior high school, I read a book by Dorothy Sterling, and I can't remember the title of it, but it was the biography of Harriet Tubman. It was one of the very few um, books, black history books, available at that time, because this was way back in the 50s. Anyway, um, I was just taken with what she had accomplished as I became... Um, an adult, it was even more in my, you know, response to her was even more intense because I truly realized what she had accomplished, uh, taking people in groups to freedom from the South through woods and darkness and all kinds of danger without any kind of light or technology or anything, and repeatedly so. So if she could go back and claim lives and save lives and, you know, continue through her lifetime doing this. I mean, the least I could do is to get up and go to work and <laughs> try to get a few people published. <laughs> I mean really, I can do this with the help of technology, light, you know, food, <laughs> friends, all of that. Food, friends, <laughs> all of that. Wow, it's funny. You said that she taught you this responsibility and these different characters did the same, but I feel like the the HBCU experience does that also, and I know that you have some special connections to some HBCUs and things like that, so I really want to drop those jewels on others. You know what, Ms. Brown, I think what what is awesome is we've had the opportunity to touch on the book publishing industry a bit, and I'm going to tell you that that's not the focal point of this show today, but we're going to have you back so that you can drop some more knowledge and probably have some of your mentees on the show as well so that they can talk about the marketing and, and how to actually go about, you know, getting your uh, platform together and things like that in order to make your book a, a big deal. But now I'm curious, you know, how did you create this life uh, that you have? And, and so I guess my first question in regards to that would be like, what was it like growing up? I know you grew up at a, uh, in a segregated era, uh, era but, you know, what was, what was it like growing up for you? Um, could you elaborate um, a little bit more about what was it like? <laughs> yeah, so I, to my knowledge, from reading your bio and things like that, you grew up on different college campuses. You had uh, both parents. Your dad was uh, was an engineer. Uh -huh. um, and so tell us about that. Also graduated at Penn State, correct? So yes. yeah, like tell us about uh, Marie Brown growing up in the cities and states that you grew up in. Okay, well, actually, a short bio... Um, is that I was born in Philadelphia, but at a very young age, as an infant, I uh, 
moved to um, Hampton, Virginia with my um, parents. My father uh, was a professor at Hampton, and um, he had indeed graduated from Penn State with a civil engineering degree, but because of the time and the era, he was not able to obtain a job as an engineer, and so the only options for him professionally um, were to consider um, teaching, and he did. Um, So he went to Hampton, uh, and he taught engineering, and from there we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where he established the School of Engineering at Tennessee State University. For me, growing up in both Hampton and Tennessee State was an invaluable experience. Um, I was totally immersed in black life and culture. Um, And it was actually imposed on us because of segregation. But that allowed us to experience um, some of the most amazing um, opportunities that um, one could have during one's formative years. Um, That included um, seeing um, such uh, stellar performances from people such as Marian Anderson and Pearl Primus and Catherine Dunham and um, the Fisk Jubilee Singers and um, uh, Count Basie and uh, Little Willie John. See, that's really dating me because probably your listeners don't even know who Little Willie John is. (laughs) Uh, They can Google it. Yeah, they They can Google it. They can Google it. And uh, so many others. Um, In addition, you know, there were all of the various events and programs um, where we were exposed to um, the literature of Paul Lawrence Dunbar and um, W.B. Du Bois and so many others. So that immersion in black culture really did give me um, a solid foundation in black culture, black history. And so moving forward, um, when I, our family moved to back to Philadelphia and for the first time I attended an integrated high school where we were um, in the minority that is black students were in the minority. And our cultural and historical contributions were consistently diminished and um, we had to stand up to that and certainly my parents made many visits to the schools to particularly to Germantown High School to inform the teachers that you know uh, they needed to get the history right and they needed not to um, uh make those kinds of um, denigrating comments about black people in their classes. So moving on to Penn State, which was even a larger um, landscape where black students were really in the minority. I think that we were about 250 students out of maybe 20,000. And 
there were no black faculty members at the time. So here we were, you know, 250 young people on a campus with no real adults mm-hmm. and no real cultural context. But my foundation in Nashville and in Hampton and uh, in our community, actually, in Philadelphia, really did prepare me to move beyond um, that experience and with the confidence that was necessary, especially as I moved into the corporate life in New York in in publishing. Yes. So, I mean, like you said, you know, you were on the campus of Tennessee State and on Hampton University. I graduated Clark Atlanta. Like Clark Atlanta helped me understand my responsibility and be able to move uh, forward, you know, for my my brief time that I had in uh, the corporate arena as well. So my question for you is, is going back just a little bit, where did your love for books come from? Or like, how did that how did that come about? Well, we always had um, books in our home. And uh, that probably had a lot to do with my mother's love of reading and literature. Um, She actually was an English teacher, so Mm -hmm. that contributed to, you know, our library. But as a child, you know, I just found the library a very, very sweet place to be. I just loved books. I loved books. from my childhood, you know, certain classics. And uh, as I, you know, continued my education uh, through high school and college, you know, books were always at for entertainment as well as for information, always my um, go-to, I guess I could say, um, hobby um, because I didn't excel in sports. I didn't... I was not a musician at all, but, uh, reading, even though music was trying to, you know, my parents always wanted me to play the piano. That was a disaster. Uh, <laughs> but your, your sport and, and your, you know, your musical talent was all in, in the reading. That's what It was all in the reading. And, That's and right. And understanding the literary yeah, work. Yeah. And it was that exposure to a larger world mm-hmm. um, through reading that gave me the... Uh, the initiative to just go out into that larger world and to look for some of those opportunities and experiences that I had read about. And in fact, that's what happened when I um, finally moved into book publishing at Doubleday. Okay, so i got to ask you, number one, one burning question for me right now is what did you major in in college? I'm super curious. Well, I majored in psychology, but I majored in psychology because psychology was fancy. It was something, Uh you know, I wanted to, you know, think that I would grow up and graduate and become a psychologist. Um, At Penn State, psychology was in the School of Education, so that was my fallback. Because I knew that I could get a job. You know, usually psychology was, you know, in the School of Liberal Arts or, uh, and uh, you had to continue on to receive advanced degrees in order to um, really make psychology, you know, a meaningful major. Right. But I could minor in secondary education, which I did, Mm -hmm. and I graduated and became a junior high school 
social studies teacher. Got you. Okay. So from social studies teacher, how do you end up at Doubleday? Like, how does this, what is this transition? Well. Social studies teacher in Philly, correct? Right. Okay. Um, actually, I enjoyed my time in the classroom, um, but an opportunity had come along uh, with the Philadelphia school system, and at the time, they were pioneering in school integration, and they had established a department, uh, the Office of Intergroup Education. And primarily, this office was to provide uh, curriculum materials and in-service training for schools, administrators, teachers, parents on the new, quote-unquote, multicultural materials that were being published and also, uh, you know, how to facilitate uh, classroom integration. So I took a test and actually became one of eight coordinators in the Philadelphia school system okay. that to implement these um, plans and to um, uh, work with um, primarily administrators and teachers on these initiatives. And during one of these in-service courses, someone came from book publishing to talk to us about the new multicultural materials. Mm -hmm. And that was Loretta Barrett um, at Doubleday. And she suggested that if I was ever in New York, I should come to uh, Doubleday and perhaps we could have lunch. And so I did during my Easter break from the school system and I called Loretta Wow! and I said I'm in New York let's have lunch and she said okay and so we had lunch and then we talked about what I was doing in the system and she said oh you should talk to some people at Doubleday about what you're doing and so I said okay so she said well I'm not going to be in tomorrow because tomorrow's Good Friday but I will set up appointments for you to to tell them about your job in you know uh, the Philadelphia school system and I did as it turned out it was a job interview for me. I didn't know that. <laughs> but they offered me the job. I uh, had to consider that because I was a coordinator at its school, in, right? in the school system right, right. in Philadelphia. But I knew that this was an opportunity that may be lost. Um, and this was hmm. at the end of the 60s. I mean, you know, mid-60s. So I okay. said... Okay, I went back to Philly, and I said, I, I'll think about it. And I thought about it, and I said, I'm moving to New York. Wow. And I'm going to take a step back professionally and take this job as a an, um, as an intern. Right. And so I did. Um, now, this whole position had been given impetus by Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Okay. Um, because what had happened, and I found out later after I had accepted the position, was that Adam Clayton Powell Jr. had um, held a congressional hearing mm -hmm. where he had called in all of the um, publishers in New York and had uh, asked them to testify as to how diverse their um, employment policies were and their publications. And, of course, I mean, they came up short. So this meant, with that kind of pressure coming from a congressional hearing and from mm -hmm. Washington, 
everybody was scrambling around trying to make affirmative action work. And I was a beneficiary of that. And this can be found in the congressional record, you know, wow. this whole testimony. Imagine that today. Ha! Huh? Never would happen. But hmm. I'm telling you, uh, my career, I owe it to, you know, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. And he's very seldom given that credit because that's buried somewhere in the congressional records around 1966-67. Wow, Ms. Brown, you've done a couple things that, that I felt were really, really important. Number one, listening. When people were giving you opportunities, you're listening and then you're actually following through, which I feel like is, is huge. And then you're taking chances. Not only are you taking action, but you're taking chances. You, you agreed to take that step back in order to take a thousand steps forward. When you went back to Philly, like how long did it take you to actually figure that out? And then how did the internship, how did it pan out for you? Well... I had benefited from in-service training from a, um, and that was being led by um, a sociology professor at Temple, Donald Cheek. Mm-hmm. And he always talked about risk. And it's okay. ironic that we would um, quote, um, you know, Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, Ali today, but that is one of the reasons that that quote from him really is significant because Donald Cheek, this is in the mid-60s, he was saying that we would be much farther along as a people if we took more risks um, and that um, that was not so much what we were socialized into doing. Mm. Um, And that we can still see as entrepreneurs, um, as independent thinkers, not going along with the crowd, um, just determining, you know, it's a matter of self-determination as an individual. And I did not come out of that experience. Certainly, you know, um, everyone I knew and had graduated with they were taking another path, another journey. But for some reason, because I had read so much mm. and I had had these secondary experiences where I could see that other people would step outside their comfort zone, um, that is what really informed my decision, that I can at least make an effort I can at least try to do this. If I sit back and say, well, you know, I should have, could have, would have, which is one of the things that we always hear. Right. And that I hear a lot from my contemporaries who are now retired. Then, you know, those are lost opportunities. And who's to say that you can't always step back and go back into that comfort zone? You know, nobody's preventing you from doing that. So that's what I always understood. I could always return to the classroom. I could always return to Philadelphia. And it had been my intention to do that. I mean, on some of those tough days where, you know, I'm the only black person in sight, I said, oh, well, wait a minute. (laughs) I think I might turn around and go back. But I never did. Wow. And I mean, somebody that you mentioned who was your hero, Nelson Mandela, he has a quote and is, there's no passion to be found in playing small. 
and settling for a life that is uh, less than the one you are capable of living. And I feel like you, you stepped up. Well, you stepped further than up because I know that even with this internship, you weren't the first person. I mean, you weren't the only person who had this opportunity, but you were also the only one who sustained and stayed in the game. Is that is that accurate? There were 10 of us, and we were not all black. I mean, it was not an all-black group. Right. Um, I think that I was the only black intern at the time. Um, and um, But two of us uh, sustained the experience and um and made it through till we were given jobs that we thought we were hired to um have but it only took eight months longer than um we had planned for these jobs to really become a reality okay so miss brown you 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 do the internship what happened after the internship what, what was next well after that um well the internship was really um one that was supposed to end after 10 or 12 weeks and as i just mentioned it was 10 or 10 months before the internship ended um and Subsequently, a lot of people had dropped out of it, except John Ware and myself. Um, and then, uh, you know, I said, well, I'm, I'm here now, um, so you all have to do something. And I had identified a job that I wanted, and I told them, this is the job I want. They said, well, there's no position. It's not actual position. I said, create one. Huh. Because the person that I would like to work with needs an assistant and I would like to be that person. Wow, talk about creating your life. You created your own position at Doubleday, right? Mm -hmm. Wow, so what was this position? Um, editorial assistant. Okay, and so from editorial assistant you went to where? Like, what was next? Okay. Tell me how Marie Brown kept creating her life past this internship. Well, I took a break. Okay. Um, because this was the end of the 60s, and the 60s had been really intense. Fell in love, got married, and moved to California. Hey, that's my state. Yes. So I moved to L.A., and uh, that was <laughs> another experience where I had to create a life um, because my husband was an artist, and he was in art school, so this meant even stepping back from an internship, because now I become the new wife of an artist in L.A., mm. <laughs> whose background was book publishing. Right. I was looking for a job. They didn't even know what I was talking about in L.A. I mean, I would follow through and then end up in all kinds of weird places like, you know, um, gospel music publications. No, that's not it. And some were other types of publications out there <laughs> that were triple X. And I'm like, oh, what? what? You know, <laughs> all kinds of crazy publishing jobs. Right. Eventually, I ended up working in a black bookstore that okay. I happened upon, which was my salvation. And it was just a wonderful experience there um, in um, San Vicente and La Brea, the bronze bookstore. Mrs. Cleves had opened a bookstore on her sabbatical leave from um, the library system, the um, L.A. school library system, and I became her only clerk in the store and I worked there for two years and I loved it so eventually you know I'd had it with LA sorry K 
Kevin. It's okay. <laughs> and it's okay. <laughs> I uh, moved back to the uh, East Coast. I had a daughter, an infant daughter. Um, I moved to Washington with my parents to get some grounding, and then Kenneth was to follow me uh, and to establish us in New York, which he did. But while I was in Washington, um, Double A called me and said, oh, would you like to have your old job back? Wow. And I said, sure, I would. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> why, who wouldn't? And in the interim, they had hired two other black editorial assistants who just could not cut it. I mean, they were phenomenal, phenomenal, brilliant women, but that corporate life, they just, different beast. it was just tough. And by this time, it was the early 70s, and um, it was becoming more and more difficult for um, black editors to acquire black books because the publishing industry was telling us, and they told me after I returned, that the black thing was over. This wow. was the 70s now. That was the 60s. Boom. It's over. And so I said, well, okay, I'm ready to take this on. So I came back and I continued to um, show them that it wasn't over. Mm. Um, and I acquired uh, black books and I acquired books in other categories um, because I had other interests. And I acquired books that were... Um, books that would be categorized as um, social justice books, books dealing with issues such as um, uh, elder care, um, burnout, coping with difficult people, Cooking. cookbooks, mm -hmm. um, reggae. Um, I did the first trade books on reggae, reggae bloodlines with um, Peter Simon and Stephen Davis, a wonderful photo book uh, on Rastafari by Tracy Bledsoe and um, Something on the Apollo Bill too. Sparrow, and then um, also uh, Spoonbread and Strawberry Wine by Norma Jean and Carol Darden, which is among my favorites. Mm -hmm. Wow. Ms. Brown, I'm I'm amazed right now. When Doubleday called you back, what was the what was that position that, that they hired you for, rehired well, you for? Well, I explained to them that when I left I was an editorial assistant, but I would come back as um an editor and um an associate editor. I needed to have a promotion and they said, Okay. Okay, so Ms. Brown, are you calling your shots right now? You're creating your life by basically demanding and basically staking a claim in what it is that you want. So from going to, from this new position that you have, how did you become a literary agent? Like, how, how, how are we getting here? Like, you, I mean, you just keep, you keep breaking down barriers and walls. Like, well, that's such another chapter. <laughs> that's another chapter. Man, we're going to, see, we got five more minutes. I want to keep talking to you for the next two hours. I, I mean, I want to know. Um, well, fast forward. Um, I mean, we're going to have you back on. Publishing um, in the early 80s, we're really fast forward. Okay. Um, well, yeah, we just uh, skipped a decade. Yeah. I <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, was going through some turmoil, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of people in my department at Anchor Books were leaving, and it, um, I interviewed for several jobs, but uh, no one was hiring 
me or anyone like me. So an opportunity came along to um, develop a black women's magazine, Elan, and I took that opportunity. Um, and uh, the magazine folded after three issues, but it was an invaluable experience. Um, of course, I folded after the magazine folded because I had never not had a job, and but it was a matter of taking a risk. I did it, and it didn't pan out, but it lasted for almost two years. At that time, um, I just sort of could not really understand what was happening. I continued to interview for jobs in publishing, and no one was hiring me, but they were hiring my colleagues. I will not say that it was a matter of discrimination, but to me, that's what it looked like. In the meantime, I had an opportunity well, I took the opportunity to work in a bookstore on the Upper West Side. I mean, I had spent a lot of time, you know, in my favorite places during my time of unemployment and among them bookstores. And that's what happened. And I went from bookstore to agent um, gradually. And um, that's how I ended up being an agent because the industry was changing at the time and um, really calling for authors to be represented as a, a by agents. Okay, so Ms. Brown, I mean, I'm, I can't really give a synopsis of all of the, I call it game, but the knowledge that you've given to us today, I mean, from calling your shots, you know, and listening and taking risks, you know, you're talking about your successes and failures of having your own publication, being uh, edit, editor-in-chief uh, at Elon, and then you know, there's something that I didn't get to say, but, you know, you were dubbed as the godmother of African-American books. And I, I personally think that that is actually really, really amazing. But I want to say that we are going to have you back on the show very soon because I feel like there's so much more that we didn't have the opportunity to uh, to dive into. But I wanted to say thank you so much for being here with us uh, today. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's been really enjoyable to take this um look back and I look forward to being here again. Yes, absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, Create Your Life Series family, as you know, if you have any questions for uh, for Miss Brown, please feel free to uh, comment on our Instagram page at CYL Series. We'll make sure that when we have her back on, you'll be able to ask those questions. And, uh, you know, it's not very often that you have the opportunity to hear from a legend and a person who's been able to uh, perfect and redefine and, and continue to push uh, through their craft for almost 50 years, you know, so actually being able to be here and, and converse with a living legend is a both an honor and a blessing create your life ser- series family we'll see you next week and uh enjoy <laughs>